Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm joined by Terry Fakes for our final podcast of the year and one of everybody's favorites of the year. This is the best books of 2022. The books, and it's hard to come up with the best books, but I think we've come up with about nine books that we felt like really stood out. Uh, And actually, our lists don't overlap much this year. Yeah, there's two funny things this year. One, that we don't have many of the same books. Although as we get down into maybe beyond our top books, we've read several books that we both enjoyed. But uh, secondly, we both read a lot less this year than we typically do. Maybe we can discuss why that is. (laughs) But uh, we've got some really good books that we're excited to share. Before we get into it, I did want to make an announcement about something really cool that's going to be happening after Christmas. So as as you know from the past, we do a Best Books podcast. Mm-hmm. And then you and I and some of the other writers at So We Speak typically write a post about our favorite books where we maybe right. include some others and some links. And so what we're going to be doing this year is we're going to be doing 12 Days of Christmas starting the day after Christmas. And on the first day, we're actually going to be doing two different giveaways. The, on the 26th of December... We are going to be giving away one whole lot of our favorite books. So somebody is going to get all nine of these books. All of our favorite books for the year. And then after that, we're going to be giving those away individually throughout those 12 days. So you have a chance to win one of the books on this list or all of the books on this list. And the way you do that is by going on Facebook or Instagram, sharing your favorite So We Speak post of the year, podcast of the year, sharing your favorite books of the year and tagging us. Of course, you need to like and follow our account. Um, Or when we put this podcast out and start to share it, share that. But it's some way or another, you've got to share, you know, what So We Speak meant to you this year, what you liked, um, you know, give us your favorites of what you've read this year, and we will enter you in to win. And we'll announce the winner on the morning of December 26th. Uh, and that person will win all the books, and then following that, we'll we'll release the giveaways for the others. Wow, that's great! We've never done that before. I think that's an awesome idea. So I think if you if you read all the books on this list, you will have a very enjoyable year in 2023. I think so. I'm, I've enjoyed them. <laughs> I'm going to read some of the ones on your list that I haven't. Well, I always like to start off with a little yearly recap on our best books, just to talk about our different reading habits. I would say as much as you and I, neither one of us really like to talk about ourselves and, you know, personality quirks on the podcast. We do get a lot of questions about, well, how do you read so much? And what are your reading habits? And what are your routines and things like that? And I know mine have changed drastically in the last year. And uh, I know from your list, you haven't read as many as you usually do. So what was the different emphasis that you were doing this year? What was your different schedule? Well, uh, schedule-wise, it was busier for me this year, so I had a little less free time for reading. I'll tell you what I've done this year to make up for that fact, is I generally have work research going for whatever series, and I'm going to set that aside. Yeah. I actually do some of that at work, and I. Uh, so that's one thing. But just for normal reading, I have an Audible book going, I have a Kindle book going, and I have a, a hard copy book going. And what I found is for me, Audible, the books that are not highly technical, but history books, uh, for example, I'll tell you the ones on my list that I read that, that I listened to that way. And I can get through those in car rides over a period of time. And they're very enjoyable, but they, they don't require intense study. Mm-hmm. And then the Kindle books I do, they are books that I'm paying a lot of attention to and highlighting. 
and I like the way Kindle does highlights. And then I tend to read early in the morning, at night, and if I don't have a lunch appointment, I try to do it a little, and that's where my paperback is. So I'm the same as you in some ways. I The books on this list, I think there's only one of them that I really would consider part of work reading. And that's not to say that the things that I read, like you for sermon prep or different series or just to be growing in my job, that's not to say those are not really good books. It's just those are different. Sometimes I do or don't include those. A lot of times it's commentaries or backgrounds right. or that kind of thing. Exactly. That I, I sometimes don't even put on my good reads or anything like that. Right. Because uh, you're just dipping into those books. I mean, the most of these are ones that I read either in the morning or in the evening. Um, and so these, I would consider these more enjoyable reading right. than maybe technical or work kind of reading. And and that's one of the things I would say for both of us is we both do have jobs that are kind of in the neighborhood of reading, researching, studying for right. part of the time. But most of the books that we cover on So We Speak are actually just books that books. Right. you got a regular eight to five where you're not reading anything enjoyable. This is still our recommendation right. is when you get an hour in the evening or if you have time after the kids go to bed to do 10 or 15 pages, these are books we think would be worth that time. And so I always like to make that clear. This isn't just, uh, you know, if you're in ministry, you'll love these books. This is, I think anybody would love these books. Now, they have a Christian bent a lot of times, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think these books are books I would recommend to almost anybody. So what do you account for your less reading this year? Well, I do think the schedule was a little bit busier. And I, uh, okay, this is going to sound bad. I didn't find as many books I was interested in this year. Yeah, I have, I, found, I have a theory you know about I that. Found, I found that I reread. I reread Henry Kissinger's Crisis, an analysis of the Yom Kippur War. I reread two biographies. I didn't put them on the list because they're rereads. But I found myself rereading. And uh, again, I, I hesitate to criticize the book market, but I didn't find as many books as I was interested in. Well, I think there's two things about that. Number one, on the, on this list, now you'll see some, on the later stuff, you'll see some different kinds of books. But on this list, we do try to get books that have come out either this year or last year, mm-hmm. just to get new books. Right. And I do think you and I both have some rereads this year that would be interesting. And maybe I'll write about those uh-huh. in the, during the 12 days of Christmas. Just, I really enjoy dipping back into this. Right. But uh, they're not new books for this year that I'll put on my favorite list. The second thing is, I have a theory about the publishing world. Maybe some of our listeners know more about this than I do. But what seemed to me to be happening was you, you have a fairly spread out book market in normal times. Then in 2020, you had all these authors at home who were either finishing books or writing books that were all published last year. And so it was like, instead of having an evenly spread out book publishing market, almost everybody that was going to write a book published one last year. So they're not publishing one this This year. year. So I'm wondering if next year is going to be a really good book year. Uh, Because I do think that a lot of books came out faster than they would have, or they were started when people were sitting at home, writers Uh were sitting at home in 2020. And we reaped the benefits of that last year. But we haven't seen as many good books come out this year. That's just a that's, a good that's just an anecdotal theory, right? So let's dive into the best books of the year. Uh, you have four. I have five that I would put in kind of the top echelon mm-hmm. of, of our books. What's your first one? Well, Henry Kissinger at the age of what ninety eight 
literally wrote a book called Leadership, and it is profound. I think the introduction alone is worth the price of the book. I would agree with that. And he, in it, he profiles six leaders in the 20th century, each of whom he thinks has a certain leadership strategy. I'll run them down really quickly. Margaret Thatcher, a strategy of firm in her convictions. Conrad Adenauer in Germany, making the transition from World War II to the modern world. Uh, Nixon, equilibrium, balance of power. Charles de Gaulle, again, another transitional figure, the power of will. Anwar Sadat, one of my favorite characters, uh, transcendence, Hmm. looking beyond the immediate. And then Lee Kuan Yew, whom I've talked about before, because Mm -hmm. last year I read two biographies of Lee Kuan Yew. But Excellence, the one that brought, uh, that basically brought uh, Hong Kong into the 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 world from a backward third world little place. So he profiles them in great detail. He knew them all. He worked with them all. Mm -hmm. And his writing style is very easy to read, but his insights are profound. I would recommend almost any book by Kissinger if you're interested in the subject. This one is a great book on leadership. Yeah, I'm only partially... partially through this one or I would put it in my top books but mm-hmm. I, I there is one on here that I'm only partially done with but as a general rule I like to put books right. that I've already finished and so I'm only I've done the Adenauer chapter and the De Gaulle chapter and they have both been fantastic but I would agree with you if he just bound up the intro and sold it for right. 20 bucks or however much this book is it would be worth it right because his breakdown of what makes a really powerful memorable world leader is Mm -hmm. really insightful and that trickles down into any kind of leadership it's not just global leadership but that's what he's focused on in this book the other thing i thought was was interesting is he is a first-rate historian in his own right abstractly right he's trained that way has written that way but the thing that was really good about this book is it's all people that he had dealt with right so he's got not just the historian's vantage point although he does that right and he does that really well he uses this is sources but yeah he is a source but he himself knowing them shapes the material right so you really i think get the best of kissinger in this book if somebody was going to start anywhere this might be a good this place is probably to begin. a great place to start if you've never read anything by kissinger because it's so relevant oh yeah and i mean it's history in the 20th century but the leadership lessons are timeless and whether you know any of these People right. are not. It's it's really good. So, if, But if you weren't going to start this one, or if you read this and you love this, what is your recommendation for where to go next with Kissinger? Boy, that's a hard question. Uh, he, I'm using the book Crisis, The Anatomy of the Yom Kippur War. It is extremely detailed, but what, I'm, what I think people learn from that is, of course, the history, but actually, how do things actually get done at an executive level mm. or at a world level yeah. is very good. His memoirs, it's three big, thick volumes, but I've read them, oh, I'll bet 10 times Yeah, because his writing style is so good. So if you're interested in that era, the Nixon-Ford era, it's it's a first-person insight. But there are just so many leadership takeaways from that. Mm-hmm. So just almost anything by Kissinger. Is- I noticed in an article this week that James Stavridis wrote, uh, he put a little uh, bibliography together for the new House Committee on China. Uh-huh. And he put Nixon's on China on oh, his Kissinger's, list. Oh, Kissinger's, yeah. Kissinger's. Or, uh, yeah Kissinger's. And that's really good. Yeah, his about- analysis called On China... 
is very good. He also wrote a book called New World Order or World Order, and mm-hmm. it's also very good. Very yeah. good commentary on our times. Both yeah. of those are good, Cole. That's a good both remembrance. That, his memoirs, I mean, it's all very applicable right now. Mm-hmm. Kissinger's impact is still felt. And he's still speaking. It's pretty amazing. He's almost uh, yeah, 100 amazing. years old, still speaking. Uh, well, that's one I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing in the new year. Mm-hmm. The first one on my list is a little off the beaten path for me in terms of uh, the books that we typically recommend. It's a book called Rogues, and it's by Patrick Radden Keefe. And chances are, if we've talked in the last six months, I've recommended this book to you. You have told me about this a couple of times. Uh, because I loved this book. The, the way I got onto it uh, was interesting. I was listening to the book called Empire of Pain on Audible. It's one of the New York Times bestsellers for the last couple of years. And it's by this same author, Patrick Radden Keefe, and it's on the Sackler family who owned the drug company Purdue Pharma, OxyContin, several of these big opioid drugs. And it, it chronicles the rise and fall of their family. It's really interesting. And I got done with it and I thought, this was so well written. The story was interesting. I didn't really, there was nothing about it that I had any dog in the fight. I just thought, well, the opioid crisis is something I'm interested in. Uh-huh. And and it and it's so well written, I thought, I will read anything that this guy's written. So what else has he written? Well, when I looked, I saw that this book had just come out. And this book is actually 12 or 14 of his features from The New Yorker. So he used to be a writer at The New Yorker. And he would do like one story a year that he would spend the whole year researching. I mean, they're long-form journalism. But they are so well written that they will keep you on the edge of your seat. And I, I would recommend that you read this in any form, but he reads it on Audible and does such a good job. The chapters are about an hour and 15 to an hour and 30 mm-hmm. minutes long. So if you speed it up a little bit, it's great for a 45 or 50 minute car ride or you know when you're working right. on something. But I mean, it's there are diamond heists in Antwerp and art thieves and how they caught El Chapo is one of the chapters. So it's like the story of this adventure. And uh, they all have these sprawling, interesting threads that he's able to get. The the defense attorney for uh, the Boston bomber is one of them. And the cases that she's taken and kind of a look at her. There's a story in there about Trump, how uh, Burnett came in and remade Trump's career bringing him to be a presidential candidate. So they're all really interesting. Uh, and intriguing, and so this is just a pleasure read. But it was it's it's really really enjoyable, and uh, anybody anybody would like it. It's a great read. I'll tell you one I listened to on Audible. It's called Innovation by Peter Ackroyd. You know Ackroyd because he's a historian. He endeavored to do a six volume history of I guess the British Empire. Well, innovation is the sixth and last one, and they're chronological, of course. This basically is the 20th century. It goes right up to Diana, Princess Diana's death. But it goes into a little in-depth. It's not massive, but it tells you about the various, uh, obviously, Queen Elizabeth and her reign and how she interacted with the prime ministers, what the key... Uh, crises were for each prime minister, what's going on in the art world in mm-hmm. England throughout. The, it's just a great little history of the country. And this last one may be one of the best, be, partly because it's uh, well-written, but it's also very timely. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as reading about those 
kings and queens that you can't remember the Edward the Seconds and the Richard the Thirds and right. This is a little more immediate, but this was a great audible for me because I wasn't intending to highlight it or memorize it. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed this because it was easygoing. Listen to a little bit as you're going from appointment to appointment in the car. It was engaging, so I yeah, enjoyed it. He's a he's a top notch storyteller mm-hmm. historian. Um, I'm not as far as you are in this series, but the last one I read in this series is Rebellion, which is over Charles II, Cromwell, the Protectorate, the Long Parliament. I mean, one of the most turbulent times of British history. Really well told, really good, Um, and and a great uh, insight into how power and empire and Mm -hmm. succession all take place. He's, He's really, really good. If you're interested in British history... Maybe start at the end is what I'm right. Hearing. Maybe start at the end and work backwards. Honestly, you could read it that I didn't read it that way, but I'm not sure that wouldn't be a good idea. Well, I know he came out with a new book about London this year. I haven't looked at it at all, I but not, I saw. I haven't gotten that. I, I saw gotta, that. The history. It's basically a history of a city. Right. Yes. So that's yes. an interesting idea. Um, the second book on my list is Scribes and Scripture, and I posted about this not too long ago. It's by John Mead and Peter Gurry. And John Mead is actually going to be on the So We Speak podcast. It'll probably be, I don't know exactly when it's going to come out, but I think it'll probably be the first or second podcast of the new year. Great. That's when it'll come out. That will be interesting. And uh, John Mead is a guy I don't know well, but I know him a little bit, enough to get him on the podcast. And he is just a top-notch scholar. He His area is in ancient manuscripts of canon lists, is right. one of the books that he's written. He's a... Scholar into textual criticism and backgrounds. I mean, he has a wide range of knowledge. But this book is written for lay people. So he's at Phoenix Seminary. He and Peter Gurry have started a thing called the Text and Canon Institute. Hmm. And as a part of doing that, they've, they've traveled around the country talking to churches about the issues that are in the book, which would be, how did we get the Bible? How do right. we know we can trust the, the different manuscript traditions and the text we have, is it the same as the text that was written? And then how do you sort through all the translations? That's basically right. the way the book is, is broken down. And you can tell that they learned a lot from talking to churches because I think they address, and this is what we talk about in the podcast, they, they address about the top five or six questions that you get when you talk about the Bible. And that's key because you and I both have an interest in textual transmission and textual criticism, and it's a very interesting field, but... For the average person, what they really want to know is, how was the Bible canonized? And that little subgenre of textual mm-hmm. criticism is of the most interest to the average person. Yeah. And this book focuses on that. And it can get really complicated really quickly. And that's what they do so well is they just they put it in a very readable, understandable. Mm-hmm. They work you through. This is how manuscripts are transmitted. This is how you get a manuscript family. This is how we know we can trust them. Here's the comparison with other books. I mean, it's... It's data heavy in some ways because they've got to show you all the receipts. I mean, they, they tell you exactly what you need to know, but they give it to you in bite sized pieces. So you come away knowing when was the canon actually put together? Was it just decided by the church? No, it wasn't. Here's how it's happened. Right. And, you know, is it true that we have, you know, 100,000 variations in our manuscripts between what the autograph said and what our Bible say? No. Here's what most of the changes are, and and right. here's how you know you can try. I mean, it's it's just very helpful pastoral. Uh, it's it's a one that I'll recommend to a lot of people in the future. I think one on my list, changing just a little into the church world, is called "Non Anxious Presence" by Mark Sayers. Sayers has written a lot of what I'd call he's a Christian. 
and he's writing social commentary from a Christian perspective. And he's written several books, and they've all been good. This one builds on the work of a non-Christian that you and I both read the book, Failure of Nerve, by Friedman, who was a rabbi and a psychologist. And we may have talked about that last year, but that book is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And the whole church world seems like they all read it at once this year, and everybody in the church world's talking about Friedman's book. Mm -hmm. Well, what Sayers did is he took that psychological background and he just pulled out and applied some of those insights to church leadership. So the reason this is on my list, having read uh, Friedman's book, Non-Anxious Presence, didn't tell me anything I didn't know about Bowen theory and about the psychology, but what it did was I used this with a group. Actually, I used it with more than one group. Reading a chapter a week and discussing it, the discussion was great and Mm -hmm. the concepts were really good. So I think that Mark Sayers has adapted that work on a non-anxious presence, which is if there are two great ideas here. One is that Sayers points out the non-anxious presence is how do you engage in a situation like the turbulence of the church world or the turbulence of the world without being consumed by the anxiety of everybody else. Mm -hmm. So you can be a little bit of an anchor in the storm. And the second idea is having the courage to stand up and say, wait a minute, when the whole herd's stampeding off one direction, one person standing up with the courage of their convictions can make a difference. So I like that book, Non-Anxious Presence by Mark Sayers. Yeah, we've been Mark Sayers fans for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think whatever he writes, we're probably going to read. Right. Uh, His book, Invisible Church, was really good. Mm -hmm. And he's got several other really good books. This one is one that we read with our elders at Carlton Landing Community Church, and it's sparked a lot of really good conversations for us because it not only details the situation we're in, it's Mm -hmm. written during COVID, so it's up to date on a lot of that. But like you said, it takes Edwin Friedman's book, Failure of Nerve, which I think is really good, but it's pretty inaccessible. It's very long. It's pretty dense. You have to do a lot of your own application in it. I mean, you're really grappling to think okay, I get this conceptually, but how would I actually translate this into right. uh, real-world living? That's what Mark Sayers does best. Right. Is he takes big ideas, technical ideas, synthesizes them, puts it into... I mean, this book is like 220 pages. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a very small easily book. Easily readable in a, uh, in a group setting in a relatively short period of time. But I, I think he's exactly right, and I think this is why this concept is caught on. I think one of the missing pieces of Christian, distinctly Christian leadership is the ability to be a non-anxious presence, which is to be to stay relationally connected with someone, but not pass anxiety back and forth with that person. So right. not being tossed to and fro by the emotional uh, surrounding that you're in and the environment that you find yourself in, but at the same time not dealing with that environment by checking out. Right. So how do you stay present and connected, but non-anxious right. and integrated? Not and drawn into the... Roller coaster ride of emotional back and forth. Right. And mm-hmm. that's really powerful. And he, he lines out how that might happen in a church setting, how it might happen in a family. Really important book. The next one on my list is in the same mold as that one. It's a Christian book uh, that I've just taken a lot away from in terms of practical living, ministry, leadership, all that. It's called The Life We're Looking For by Andy Crouch. 
And I would put Andy Crouch and Mark Sayers in pretty much the same category. Uh-huh. They're both great at distilling big ideas down and making them palatable, making them doable, understandable, discussable. And his contention in this book is how do you live in a dehumanized age? It's a dehumanized age because of globalization. It's dehumanized because of technology, particularly. It's dehumanized because of our phones, social media, the connection without actually being connected. Uh So he's taking on this whole ecosystem that we live in and saying, but what is the life we're really looking for? It's a life of deep, meaningful human relationships, connection, powerful senses of story and meaning in our own lives. And so because of that, it's part self-help in the sense that it is a reaction against the environment that we live in. But it's Christian to the core in how has God actually designed us? And what are the things about technology that are actually Mm God-honoring? And so he talks about the difference between using technology as magic, which magic, the way he defines it, is kind of expecting something to do things for you so that you can have an easy life. Right. Versus using it as a tool which is you are the master, you learn how to use the tool for some other end. And the problem with a lot of our technology use is we have no other end. It's right. just enjoyment, or it's right. just mind-numbing, or it's just escapism. There's no endeavor into which it's put. Right, and, and if you don't have an endeavor, you don't have any sense of purpose. Right. And that's why some of our technology leads to this cultural malaise and anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. We have the highest mental health rates, poor mental health rates in the world right now. In America, and part of it is because technology is slowly lulling us into a meaningless existence. So he takes on technology, but he also takes on things like households. And we need to start thinking of ourselves instead of just thinking of our nuclear family. We need to think of the world we live in in terms of households. Who are the people that you do life with all the time? Right. This could be part of your company. It could be your neighbors. It could be the people that you, your kids play sports together. You're in a small group with each other. Who are the people that you really depend on? That's going to directly influence the quality of your life. Right. If you have healthy, Christian, loyal people that will tell you when you're out of line, uh, if you have that kind of community around you, you're, you're going to grow and you're really going to have a fulfilling life. And if you don't, you're going to have a lot of problems. And so you need to re-examine what is your household like? And he goes back to Colossians and First right. Peter looking at the household codes of the New Testament and saying, you know, they realize that their whole household, husband and wife, kids, slaves, workers, everybody was all affected by their faith and they all had to work together. So how do you live that out? Mm-hmm. That's a great call for us to start thinking about how, how our meaningful relationships shape us and how we shape them. It was another big takeaway for me from that book. You know, right now, one of the things I've noticed in the in all of uh, secular world, but particularly in Christian world, is an emphasis on community, which isn't bad unless you raise community as itself to the status of a good in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of a little god, a god with a small g. The problem with it is when you say community, people don't really know what you're talking about. What I'm hearing you say that Crouch has done is define what is your your household, mm-hmm. that is that community, your your nearest community. Mm-hmm. And that's a better way of describing what, what we're talking about when we talk about doing life in community. Household is probably a better word than just community, your right. church, right? that kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a lot of big takeaways from that book. Um, it, was, it was one of my favorites. My uh, last one on my list, I know you have a couple more, is by Carl Truman. It's called Strange New World. 
the reason this is on my list, he actually wrote a big tome that I think we talked about was like the book of the year last year yes. for us. And it was inaccessible. I mean, it's thick, it's philosophical, it's got a lot of... It's a scholarly work in that he he basically cites his sources and interacts with sources. But what he did was he distilled that book down to a small paperback called Strange New World. And it basically has the key ideas. And I use this also for a small group study, a chapter a week. And the discussion was great because what Truman does is he these ideas help us explain why the world looks the way it does today. What's driving people that you can't, you can't, their thoughts seem insane to us. Well, what is it that's behind that thinking? And so helping you to understand the world, uh, things like expressive individualism, you know, how the, really the original book is the making of the modern self. How does people think about who they are? It turns out it's very different than the way Christians think about who they are. But that book has been a great tool to help us understand people who think very differently so that we can engage with people who think differently. So this is actually not new, but it is a new edition cut down to just be very accessible. We, I think we did, I think we did agree that Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self was our book of the year last yeah. year, maybe two years ago. And I was really impacted by that book. I thought Same this here. is just an awesome resource. I was really looking forward to this shorter version coming out because it's easier to give away. I mean, it's oh it's, yeah, instead of five hundred well, pages, you don't have it's to invest pages. as much time and energy in reading it. It was a great idea on his part to distill this down into some actionable ideas. And what I realized the longer book did for me is it connected a lot of things from the present into the past. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we think all of a sudden you can declare your gender? Well. Let's go back and talk about where this came from. What is the plastic self of this moldable reality we live in? That was so eye-opening, the way he did that. I'd be interested, since I haven't read the shorter, Mm -hmm. newer version of it, to know what were some of the really good light bulbs that came on or conversations that you had as you did this book in a group. What it did, Cole, was it kept the same ideas, you know, the plastic person, the plasticity uh, identities, the idea of the expressive individualism. It just took out some of the philosophical groundwork behind it. So he, he made a nod to where it came from, but he focused more on explaining this is the thought process that leads to this statement. Whereas the bigger book went all the way back and traced how we got to the point to think that way. So it includes all the major ideas but it doesn't go as in depth as to where they came from mm-hmm. and analyze the you know romanticism of Rousseau and you know the rationalism uh, you know that came out mm-hmm. of different schools of thought. He doesn't go there, so it had a lot all the same concepts. And I found that the group was able to really click with these ways of thinking about it, help them understand why someone might think what they're thinking, mm-hmm. which is key in my view, and I think in yours too. Is if you're going to have a discussion. You actually need to know, why do you think the way you think, whether I agree with it or not? Otherwise, you're left to name-calling, and mm-hmm. there's an awful lot of that going on. It's not very productive. True. Yeah, this is definitely one of those books. Put it on your, if you want to understand the world today, Yeah, this has got to be a part of your, your reading list. I've got two more on here. The first one is The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. Now, this is not a new book. This is an old book. This, is, <laughs> this book is 300 book. years old. <laughs> But, and I just wrote a post on this on the goodness of God that's on So We Speak. Uh, 
describing a little bit of why I liked this book. I have been interested in the Puritans for a long time. The Puritans are in some sense inaccessible, not because they're not available, but because some of their stuff is so hard to read. I mean, you sit right. down and try to read Jonathan right. Edwards and it and or John Owen, and it's just like pulling teeth. There's good stuff in there, but it's really tough to get through. The other thing is there aren't that many great editions of some of these books. Right. Now, I will say Banner of Truth, which is a British company has published so many of the Puritans. We can almost not say they're inaccessible just because of Banner of Truth. The other one is Reformation Heritage Books, which Joel Beakey runs, which is kind of a U.S. equivalent in some ways. Right. They're not technically related, but they do very similar things. Publishing new editions, readable editions, pretty affordable editions of mm -hmm. Puritan works, multi-volume sets, all the way down to your Puritan paperback books. They're really, really helpful. And so I've loved both of those companies for a long time. This existence and attributes of God is seems like Crossway's new statement about what they're going to be putting out. They're putting out this, they're doing all the works of John Owen over the next few years, and they're bound in this beautiful leather overboard, typeset really nicely, readable, the paper is nice. I mean, these are just beautiful editions of the books. In wow. fact, I saw somebody that was reviewing these said, finally, an edition of Charnock that is as beautiful as the text oh, wow. is. And that's really true. You start to read these existence and attributes of God, and it's apologetic at the beginning, talking about the existence of God and some of his attributes. But before you know it, you're into things like the sovereignty of God, the mm. goodness of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are just attributes that we can never fully wrap our minds around, but he writes it in a way that's so devotionally applicable. I uh -huh. find myself quoting him, thinking about the ideas that he puts in there. It's just really the best of Puritan literature. And so this one is big. I think it ends up being maybe 1,800 pages or something like that in two uh -huh. volumes. So it may be one that's easier to dip into from time to time, but it is really, really a great read. Can I piggyback on this with the other extreme? One of my honor, my top honorable mention is also by one of the Puritan writers, Thomas Chalmers. Crossway, and I say it's on the other end, not in terms of devotional thing, but in terms of size. Crossway has started publishing little paperbacks. I know you've read some of them called Crossway uh, Short Classics, mm -hmm. I think is what it's called. But this one is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Mm by Thomas Chalmers. I don't know if it's a long sermon or yeah. a very short book. I think it's a long sermon. I think that's right. But they're very small, little maybe four four inches by six inches, mm -hmm. little paperbacks. And that expulsive power of a new affection, they have several authors, and I, I take it they're going to put these out. They happen to be very, very accessible. They're oh, yeah. easy to carry around. And for that one... Is was just powerful for me, and obviously the idea was the expulsive power of a new affection. Your life is changed not because you become a Christian and change your life, but the spirit and the passion you have for Christ is a new affection that expels. It grows to make no room for the rest. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I'll leave it to people to read that. But uh, whereas Charnock's work is massive and worth the effort. Crossway is also making it really easy to access some of these authors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that series is phenomenal. My last uh, best book of the year, I reserve a spot every year for a Churchill book in my best well, book of the should. year. And so uh, the best Churchill book I read this year actually came out last year. Mm -hmm. But it's Churchill and Son 
by Josh Ireland, and it's about Churchill, Winston Churchill's relationship with his son Randolph. Now, I almost didn't read this book. I think at the end of the year last year, I had this book, or I, I think I said on the podcast last year I hadn't even ordered this book because I was unsure about it. And I had a friend who read it, and they were like, you've got to read this book. And the reason I was hesitant is because Churchill and his son did not have a good relationship. Right. And being a bit of a hagiographic Churchill reader, I'm not about to read a book that paints Churchill in a bad light. I know all the things that paint Churchill in a bad light because every good biography is going to do that. But if it's a hit job, I'm not reading it. So life is too short to read that. (laughs) So anyway, I typically avoid those. And when I saw Churchill and Son, I read the back cover, I thought... I don't know. This might just be a whole thing on, you know, Churchill was a great guy, but a terrible dad. I'm well, like, obviously I don't really it want turned to out that. very differently if it's on your top list. It did turn out really well. I found myself really enjoying it. They did have a bad that, and, and what I'm saying is not, I, I want to read people that don't tell you the truth. I want to read people who are enjoying their subject right. and who see something venerable in their subject. Churchill was certainly not perfect, and he was really not a great dad. Right. And Randolph was really not a very good son. But the book captures what a unique relationship they mm-hmm. had. You've got the most famous, at some points in his life, one of the most famous guys in the world. And at some points in his life, kind of a failed most famous guy in the world. Right. And what it looks like to come up under somebody like that and to live in their shadow. And because of that, Randolph really never made anything of himself. He was a little spoiled. He really had some of his dad's brilliance without his discipline and his grit. Uh, he didn't have to earn a lot of what came to him. And, right. and that bore interesting consequences in his life. And so it was really a great look at the two of them, how they interacted, how it affected their family. Best Churchill book that I read this year. Well, I gave you one of my honorable mentions. What are What's an honorable mention for well, me? Yeah, let me run through a couple of these. Uh, the first one came out several years ago, and I must have missed this when it came out because I tend to read everything that Alan Jacobs writes. Hmm. But this book slipped under my radar. It's called The Biography of the Book of Common Prayer. And it is part of this series that Princeton Press puts out that are stories about books. And they're oh, religious books. Some are not religious, but they're big cultural books. Right. But there's like there's one on the book of Job, for example, which has an interesting history in terms of the canon and mm-hmm. when it was written, we don't know. But anyway, this biography of the Book of Common Prayer is interesting because it starts with... Uh, you know, kind of the English Reformation, Uh Thomas Cranmer, uh, goes all the way up through the new revisions and just talks about what was it intended to be? Well, it was intended to be a universal book of devotion and prayer Mm -hmm. for the Protestant world. It didn't quite end up being that. It was revised. Some of the language was kept. Now you have some people that like the 1662 version, which was a revision. Right. Some people like the 1920 version, which That's is kind of a new take uh-huh. on the Book of Common Prayer. And it was a quick read, but just the right mix of history and theology and hmm. prayer and devotion. It was a great book. Uh, this is a book both of us, actually the next two are both books that we've read. We've talked about one of these books before, but in terms of uh, political memoirs. There were two I thought were really good this year. The first one is Breaking History by Jared Kushner. Mm-hmm. If you want to read a book about the Trump administration that is favorable to the Trump administration, there are a lot that are not, this is the one to read. Right. Not just because Jared Kushner is his son-in-law, but because Jared Kushner was responsible for 
the major accomplishments of the Trump administration. Outside of judges and Supreme Court picks, which he had very little to do with, if you name any big undertaking, any big accomplishment in the Trump administration, chances are Jared Kushner was the one who was the point person on it. And that goes from the wall to Operation Warp Speed to prison reform, the Abraham Accords. I mean, it's really remarkable what he was able to get done as as a part of a team, but as kind of the point person on a lot of these. And so I thought this was a really good book. If you want to just get a look that goes through those accomplishments, kind of, I think the future is going to be a, it's, it's basically going to oscillate between Trump without Trump, Trumpism without Trump, right. and other versions of conservatism. Right. If you want Trumpism, you've got to understand this book. Because this is probably the best version of that. It's been criticized for being a little bit Pollyanna. Right. That may be true. But if you want to understand it, this is the book to read. You know, one, the big takeaway for me out of this, besides the whole Trump thing and what actually happened, probably the best thing that I think young leaders can get out of this is how does, and I'm not uh, glorifying Jared Kushner, but look at this guy who comes in from the business world, real estate world, doesn't know anything about politics, doesn't know anything about international relations, and his process of learning how to be effective in that environment mm-hmm. is a great leadership tutorial. Oh, yeah. If you want to be an executive leader, you'll you'll see some qualities that he exhibits that are right. really good for getting things done. How he goes about learning his lessons and how he goes about operating in a way that's a little different than Washington, but uh, is effective. Yeah. it was. It's actually a good leadership. Very effective. Book. Now, to pair it with another memoir, uh, Bill Barr's book, One Damn Thing After Another, is excellent. Is really good. It's almost the theoretical companion right. to Kushner's book. Kushner's book is very pragmatic. How did we get all this stuff done? And that's the way he thinks. Right. Barr's book is, what is, what is my legal thinking on all the stuff we did during the Trump administration? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get in-depth kind of ethical and judicial analyses of all the stuff that they went through. You're going to get a little bit of, okay, what really happened when we cleared out the square? Was it just for a photo op? You're going to get some of that stuff in there, which is interesting to see behind the scenes. But you're going to get his thought process on the Mueller report and why it was redacted and what the process is like. Criminal justice reform, judges, the FBI. I mean... There's a lot of really well-reasoned stuff in there. So if you want to get a holistic picture, read those two books together. Now, they're long. Right. That's combined. That's like a 1,000 pages of stuff. But you will get all you can handle <laughs> about the right. good things about the Trump administration. And there's some good books that came out this year about the take, take backs. But I just feel like people don't talk about right. what the core accomplishments were. And if you want that, these are two great books for that. I agree. And I would say that like the Kushner book, this book, if you want something more than just what happened and how it happened, it, there are very few people whose minds are really worth looking into. Bars is one of them. Oh, without a the doubt. The way he reasons his judicious temperament is very interesting and, and inspirational. You will also learn leadership from that book of a different kind. Yeah, two Polar opposites, but both good memoirs. Well, just one more honorable mention. I feel like I need to get a little uh, fiction into this. I actually read a fiction book. 
you <laughs> recommended this author to me. Andy Weir mm-hmm. is a science fiction writer. He's most famous for having written The Martian, which was then made into the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't read that, but I read a book called Project Hail Mary. And so it's on my honorable mention. And he, he is a new genre of science fiction writer and really well done. Just mm-hmm. comes at science fiction from a different perspective. It was another fun read for me. I got this one on Audible, uh-huh. and I got maybe halfway through it, liked it, but just couldn't get back to it. I I like Andy Weir. I love the idea of Andy Weir, but I had a I had a hard time finishing because not because this book was wasn't good. But because at the same time I was reading the Foundation trilogy oh, by yes. Isaac Asimov, yeah, that is classic stuff. If you're reading that, you'll right. want to pretty much read that. Amazing that I read that uh, when I was younger than you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read that early twenties, high school, and it was great then. It's still great. It's Foundation really trilogy good stuff. is really good. The show is borderline worthless. Yeah. I read the books and then tried to watch the show on Apple, and it's so not very good. Books way better than book the show. is very good, and they're short books, but they're really good. This brings up a question that I'll bet you get asked. I get asked all the time. Do you feel guilty about starting a book and not finishing it? It depends. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It depends on what kind of connection I have to the book. But in general, no. I start a lot of books that I don't finish because it's it's just not worth it. It's not it's not worth it to spend your time. You can only read a certain amount of books. Right. So, it's not worth your time struggling through a bad book unless you have another compelling reason to finish it. Well, so you learned this lesson earlier than I did. And I do answer people with that same answer. I say, "Yes, I will stop and set a book aside." Because life's too short to read a book that you're not really getting anything out of. But for most of my life, and for most of the people I talked to, once I started it, by golly, I was going to finish it. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that I no longer think that way. And so I would say you are empowered to put aside a book yes. that is not engaging you. Well, I will say we have done in the past uh, honorable mentions for books that should have been better than they were. And I don't necessarily have any of those this year. But what I will say, the time when I feel this pinch the most mm-hmm. is when I've signed up to review a book for somebody. And whether it's a journal or a website or something, they send you the book for free. You are at that point obligated to finish To it. read the book. And I'm in the middle of one right now. I'm reviewing for a journal that is so bad I can't stand reading it. And... You know, those are the ones you got to just grit your teeth and get through it and, That's and find something to say about it. That just it becomes afterwards. work at that point. But otherwise, I would toss it to the side and uh, I, would, I would not finish a book that you're not enjoying. So what's on your bedside table or what's in your reading stack that you're going to start in 2023? What are some things that you're looking forward to reading? Well, let me give you one more honorable mention. Okay. I, I, this one is not a very talked about book, but it's, and it's a little bit niche, but it's the book In the House of Tom Bombadil by Chris Wiley, C.R. Uh-huh. Wiley. Uh-huh. It is, uh, I think it was published by Canon Press. It's all about the character Tom Bombadil in The Lord of the Rings. And it's talking about leadership a little bit who is Tom Bombadil uh-huh. and I won't give anything away about how he makes his argument but he applies it essentially to the Christian mission in the world and that mm-hmm. Tom Bombadil in some way is a vision of holistic Christian living in the world rightly ordered towards nature towards power towards relationships towards joy and Tom Bombadil embodies all of these things. It's a short read, but really good. If you're a Lord of the Rings person, this is a great book in the House of Tom Bombadil. Excellent. 
books that I'm either starting or in the middle of, two, two books I'm in the middle of, uh, Tracers in the Dark by Andy Greenberg. He is a, he is a technology journalist. This book is about basically crimes and uh, schemes in crypto and ah. blockchain and emerging uh-huh. uh, decentralized finance. So it's structured around four or five big narratives. The first one is the Silk Road, which actually kind of came to public prominence because Chuck Schumer did a big press conference on it. It uh-huh. was a drug smuggling ring. It was almost like a black market drug marketplace uh-huh. that was on a blockchain with encrypted servers. Right. Nobody knew who was running it. You could basically buy and sell using different cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. But on these message boards and things, people figured out that the leader of it was this person named Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> and so he tells the story of how the, it actually wasn't the FBI. It was actually the IRS who tracked down who this guy was and how they found out who he was given all this encryption and secrecy. It's really an interesting story. So it's all about that kind of thing. I've been following the FTX SBF story really closely. This is kind of the predecessors of the FTX uh, blow up. And I think this is a really interesting space. He's a really interesting journalist. He writes for Wired and several other places. Uh, I think these stories are worth watching because I think there's some big trends that are encapsulated. Maybe we'll talk about that in the new year. I think there's a lot we can learn about what's happening with FTX right now and and the implications of it. Not just because I think it's kind of garden variety fraud, but because of the whole phenomenon of Sam Bankman-Fried. So this book is like that. It's very interesting. It's, It's almost a primer if you're looking for one on some of the terms and concepts that are going on. But it also reads like a mystery mm. book, like a whodunit. So that's a good one. You and I are both in the middle of and almost finished with The Fall of Boris Johnson yes. by Sebastian Payne. I know some of our listeners are probably not interested in British politics, but we are definitely interested in British politics. Well, there are a lot of lessons to be learned about why that administration failed. Well, I think Boris is fascinating. I, I, he's one of my favorite world mm-hmm. leaders and just a historical figure I think everybody should know. But this book is written by a Financial Times columnist, He's, or maybe he's a contributing editor. It's very interesting. It's very in the weeds. British yes. politics is very different than American politics. Uh, but you learn the ins and outs. You get mostly the worst of Boris. Uh-huh. I don't think maybe this person gives him his full due. Uh, but you get to see really interesting trends and happenings and scandals. Well, there's some world-class double crosses. Here oh, yeah. Too. <laughs> it's, 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 you couldn't write fiction this good. No, you couldn't, and he does a good job of writing it. The last book I started, I've skimmed through almost the whole thing, but I stopped because our elders are going to read it together in the new year. It's the book Forgive by Tim Keller. Hmm. And what I've read of it has been phenomenal. I know where he's going because I've skimmed through the book, but I'm looking forward to taking time to really read this book slowly and discuss it as a team, talk about what he's getting at with forgiveness, and especially we live in a world that is now more, our world is more at cross purposes with biblical forgiveness and the biblical worldview of what to do with sin than probably we've ever experienced. Uh, Certainly in the history of Christendom uh, with, with quotes around it, there hasn't, there haven't been many societies that are, are as opposed to the central tenets of forgiveness 
as our society is right now. So it's been a really, really interesting book to think through. I'm looking forward to a slow read of that one in the new year. That's great. For me, like you said, I'm listening on Audible to an, that entertaining book, The Fall of Boris Johnson. The Tim Keller book, Forgive, that just came out, I'm queued up to do that with a group first week back, was started the first week back in January. And then I'm teaching, this is a, actually a fun read, not a work read. I'll tell you why. I'm going to teach Book of Revelation again, starting in January. So I've got my research going for that. I mean, I've read a ton on that, but I always like to read the latest stuff to keep my mind fresh. Well, Douglas Wilson is a guy that we both know, and we don't necessarily agree with everything that Wilson thinks, but Wilson is a top-notch thinker. Mm-hmm. And his stuff on Canon Press, I would highly recommend listening to him, particularly his commentary on the world mm-hmm. and Christians in the world. Oh, yeah. I, I, his reasoning and his mind are very clear. Oh, yeah. Well, he wrote a book on Revelation, and it's called When the Man Comes Around. <laughs> he needs somebody to help him title his books. But here's why I'm reading it, Cole. He's a preterist. Mm-hmm. So four types of views of Revelation. Preterist is probably the least popular today. Mm-hmm. It's on the rise. It, it, well, yeah, it's coming back. And it's not my view, although it's one of the views I teach. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to read what Wilson has to say about the preterist approach to the book of Revelation because I know it would be well thought out. Oh, and it'll be so well written. I, I've just started that and I'm, I'm enjoying that. I don't know if many, I, I doubt very much if any of that will make it into the series, mm-hmm. which most of your research doesn't make it into the series. But I think I'll find it entertaining to hear an intelligent presentation of the Preterist view. Definitely. Well, Every year we pick out books ahead of time, and it's always funny to go back and and look at the books that we thought we were going to read and really like, and then the ones that end up on our list. So I hope these uh, do end up on our list for the next year, and I hope some of our books end up on your books list for the next year. Some of the ones that you enjoyed the most were the ones that we recommended. Uh, Don't forget our Christmas book giveaway. We'll announce the winner on the 26th. All you have to do to enter that is follow us on Facebook and Instagram, share your favorite posts of the year, or this this podcast or anything else from So We Speak, and we'll put you in the entry, and then we will announce a winner of the whole lot of books on the 26th, and then individual books on the days following during the 12 days of Christmas. So as this will be our last podcast of the year, thank you so much for supporting So We Speak, and we look forward to seeing you in 2023. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.